Is it me? Not me. First time for everything. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name's Josh. Welcome to church. Great to see you all here. I, uh, I want to tell you about the time that our senior minister, Rod Cocking, completely betrayed me. About a month ago, I came across this photo on Kurt's Facebook page. This was the caption. The staff tricked me. I thought they bought tickets for me and for Kelly. When we arrived to the musical, they were there to surprise me. Were we, Kurt? Were we all there? Notice who's not in the photo of the whole staff. They went to a musical without me, completely betrayed, thinking they'd have way more fun without me. Except, turns out I wasn't really betrayed. I misunderstood the purpose of our present to Kurt. I thought we were meant to be paying for Kurt and Kelly to go to a musical. In reality, we were meant to pay to go with them. And it made me think that everyone hated me. To misunderstand the purpose of something, it's got consequences, doesn't it? thought Rod betrayed me and everyone would have fun without me. The passage we're looking at tonight wants us to get crystal clear on the purpose of why Jesus came. We see Jesus guided with an absolute clarity of what he was here to do. And it's vital for us to look deeply at it and get clarity on it. Why? Why does it matter for us to get clear on why Jesus came? What's the problem with us misunderstanding? Well, first, if you misunderstand what Jesus came to do, then you'll miss out on what he came to bring. You misunderstand what Jesus came to do, you'll miss out on what he came to bring. But second, uh, you, you might be thinking, I know, I know what Jesus came to do. This is not a question that grabs me or has any attention for me. Probably maybe not that much in this passage for me. What you're going to see is that there's a clarity to Jesus' life that's probably missing from yours. And there's a great corrective in here that will help you grow as a disciple that follows in the footsteps of your king. So it's great to have you here tonight. Why did Jesus come? Let's have a look at point one. Jesus came with authority to teach and to tear down Satan. Have a look at verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Jesus comes from Nazareth, his hometown, down to Capernaum, uh, and as he normally does on the Sabbath, he heads to the local synagogue, and he begins to teach. And the response is that people are astonished at his teaching. And so it's probably nothing like the sermon you're going to hear tonight. But did you see why the people were astonished? Verse 32, for his word possessed authority. See, the way that the religious leaders, mainly Pharisees, would teach in Jesus' day was that they would constantly quote other authorities to give their words power, meaning, and authority themselves. It was said about them that they were in bondage to quotation marks. They could never just say something themselves. They always had to quote another authority because they didn't have any authority on their own. But when Jesus turns up, he speaks words that carry their own authority, and it blows people away. Jesus' words have authority. 
So how does he use his words? Verse 33. In the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cries out with a light, cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. When the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. A man possessed with the spirit of a demon who instantly recognizes who Jesus is. And with a word, Jesus casts out this servant of Satan, commands him to be uh, silent. And the people are amazed again at Jesus' authority, what he can do with his words. Uh, in, the, in the account of exorcisms, traditionally, there's all kinds of rituals people need to perform to try to get things happening, but Jesus just speaks a word. Easy. Now, I was going to ask the question, I don't know if you've noticed, how many miracles has Jesus done in Luke up until this point? Nathan stole my thunder on that, thank you. Jesus has performed exactly zero miracles till this point. The question is, why is that? Jesus performed a whole bunch of miracles. This wasn't necessarily his first chronologically. It's recorded differently in other Gospels. Why does Luke start with this miracle? Thought about that? Well, I take it that it signals something significant about what Jesus came to do. See, at the start of chapter 4, we see that Jesus resists Satan in his temptation. In our passage last week, we saw that Jesus proclaimed himself as the one who would free captives from bondage, verse 18. And here we see Jesus now goes on the offensive against Satan's power, releasing a man from captivity to one of Satan's demons. He's announcing here that Jesus is here to overthrow Satan and evil, which is hugely significant, though we might not think it. Because while we might not think about it much in the Western world, the truth the Bible presents to us is that the spiritual world is very real. That Satan is real. That he has real power over humanity. The Bible describes Satan as the prince of this world. That we are under the power of his rule. He influences us to turn from God so we might become God's enemies. He did it with Adam and Eve in the beginning. He's been doing it ever since. His rule has plagued humanity with the highest possible consequences. But when Jesus turns up, Satan's minions are terrified of him. They recognize him and say, have you come to destroy us? And Jesus casts him out with a word. Jesus' power and authority over Satan is hugely significant for mankind. He came to set us free from Satan's rule and his dominion. It's amazing. We see it right at the start of Jesus' ministry. He uses his authority to overthrow Satan. Is that why Jesus came? Is that the full picture? Yes, but there's more. Have a look at the next section. Point two, Jesus came to heal. Have a look at verse 38. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose 
and began to serve them. Jesus isn't only interested in the spiritual world and the spiritual lives of people. No, he cares about people's physical needs as well. And so after the synagogue, he goes to Simon Peter's house. And so I assume he's going back there for lunch with some dirty bird after church. And he finds Simon's mother-in-law, who is significantly ill with a fever. And Jesus, with a word, commands the fever to leave, and it does. Wow. Word then gets out about what Jesus can do, and people are chomping at the bit to see Jesus for healing. You can tell because the crowd races to Jesus when? Verse 40, when the sun was setting. See, it was the Sabbath, and so people had to wait for the sun to go down before they could get out. And kind of as the first rays of the sun kind of start going down, the people are all out, surround Jesus, and it's on like Donkey Kong. All who are sick come to Jesus, and Jesus heals every single one of them. Can you imagine what it would be like to be there? Healing, left, right, and center. Maybe you, maybe you had a disease since you were born. Healed by Jesus. Maybe your life revolves around caring for someone with a significant illness. Healed. Jesus lays his hands and says a word to every person from your town. And he heals them all. It's life changing. Surely this is why Jesus came. Is there anything else more amazing, more impressive, more worthwhile than this? Jesus says, absolutely, there is. But before we get there, a quick aside, because I reckon we can read a section like this, and you just kind of think, what do I do with it? It's amazing, but it just seems so far from our experience or what we would ever expect to happen. What do we do with a bit of text like this? Well, first, we're to be in awe of Jesus with his power and his authority, and what that says about who he is. But second, we're to see that clearly that God is able, he has, and he does heal. And we're told to ask for it. James chapter 5, verse 14, that's the reference if you want to look it up. We're to see clearly that God is able, he has, and he does heal. And yet, immediate physical healing is never promised. Why? is that? It's because it's not the priority. It's exactly what we see in the next section. Point three. Jesus' priority is to proclaim the kingdom. Jesus just healed a whole town of people, and so understandably, he tries to go somewhere by himself to spend some time with his father. But have a look at what happens, verse 42. When it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Jesus heads out to a desolate place, but accidentally keeps a kind of location settings on on his Find My iPhone feature. Or maybe he still had the COVID app running, and so the government was able to track him down. And so whatever happened, the people were able to find him. And their goal is to make sure that he doesn't leave. Fair enough. He's healed so many people. Jesus could go around to every hospital and clear every bed. I want to hold on to someone like that. You know, the crazy thing is, he doesn't. Jesus could have emptied every person out of every hospital bed in the world, and yet he didn't. Why? What could be more important, more valuable, more worthwhile 
than that. Verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. The primary reason Jesus came was to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's why he was sent. It's so clear and so strong for him that he says, I must proclaim it. I can't help but proclaim it. I'm completely compelled to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. So what is it? What exactly is the kingdom of God and what is the good news that's so good about it? Kingdom of God. How would you describe, how would you, how would you explain the kingdom of God? Is it heaven? Something more? Something a bit different? Here's a helpful summary. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. See, in the beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve were God's people. They lived in the Garden of Eden, God's place, and they lived face-to-face with God perfectly under his loving rule. It was paradise, the kingdom of God. But they sinned. So they were kicked out of the kingdom, out of God's place, out of relationship with him, no longer able to live under his loving rule. We skip a little bit to Exodus, and you get the amazing story of God rescuing Israel from Egypt. And remember what God says? He says, I'm going to make you my people. I'm going to bring you to a special place that I've prepared for you. And you'll be able to live there as long as you live under my loving rule. Which they did for a time. It was never as good as it was in the beginning because their sin kept getting in the way, but they were there. Until one day, their sin was so great, they got kicked out again. Taken off to Babylon and Assyria, away from God's land, away from God's rule, no longer his people. So God sent his prophets to announce that one day, God's people would once again come to live in God's perfect place, face to face with him under his perfect rule forever. But this time, anyone can be part of it. And it won't rely on you to stay in it. can't stuff it up. You can be part of it no matter who you are. You you can't lose it no matter what you do. And Jesus proclaims that the good news is that I am here to bring that kingdom now. A kingdom that won't be conditional on what you do for God, but on what I'm going to do for you in living a perfect life and dying and rising be part of this kingdom forever. When you get what the good news of the kingdom is, it's obvious why this is the priority for Jesus. So much more significant than fixing our bodies that will break again is fixing our relationship with God and bringing us into his kingdom, which can never be broken, never taken away. Why Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's so important. Why doesn't Jesus just do that? Why do you get these other accounts of healing and casting out demons? Why don't you just get 20 chapters of Jesus telling people the kingdom's here and then doing it? Have you ever thought about that? Well, partly it's compassion. He has compassion for the people around him, so he heals. Partly it's to show who he is. 
that his word has authority to heal and cast out Satan, things that only God can do. But the key thing is that it shows what the kingdom that he's proclaiming is like. The kingdom that Jesus is bringing is a place with no more evil, no more sin, no trace of Satan or sickness of any kind, never any reason to shed a tear. That is what God's kingdom is like. And that is why it's such good news that Jesus came to proclaim it and to bring it. What do we do with all of this? Point four, I've got two implications. The first one is that the offer of the kingdom is open to you. Don't misunderstand what Jesus came to do because you'll miss out on what he came to bring. If you think Jesus' purpose was to be a good moral teacher, some kind of religious leader or just some old dead guy that old people seem to like, then you've missed the point. And you'll miss out on eternal life in God's kingdom if you don't see Jesus for who he is and accept what he came to do. The reality is that none of us deserve to be part of God's perfect eternal kingdom, but we can be. We're naturally under the rule of Satan and sin. Our future is certain death, and yet it doesn't have to be. This is the good news Jesus came to proclaim and to bring in his life, death, and resurrection. But it only becomes good news for you if you accept it. Will you accept it? Will you trust and depend on Jesus to bring you to be part of God's kingdom? Second thing, as disciples, there's a challenge for us to grow in clarity of having a kingdom-focused life. See, Jesus is crystal clear, isn't he, that proclaiming and bringing the kingdom is the thing that matters. He'll heal to show what the kingdom's like, but he's clear that he'll stop to leave another town because he must proclaim the good news of the kingdom. There's incredible clarity about what Jesus must do. As disciples of Jesus, I imagine that like me, you have a long way to go in having clarity like Jesus, where proclaiming and living for the kingdom are the priority of your life. Just have a think about for a minute, think about your life, what comes after the word must or the word need for you? I must have my day off. I need to have good holidays this year. I must get eight hours of sleep. I need to have enough savings. I must go out and see these people in the morning. I need to have brekkie and a shower. I couldn't do my day without those. If I'm running late, I can probably skip the Bible bit. It's okay. That's not what makes me a Christian. That's true. But I need to have a shower. My sense is, at least for me, and so I assume you too, that we rarely or never use must when it comes to things of the kingdom. I must serve in this way. I must tell someone of how great church was so that I can start a conversation with them. I must give away as much money as I can for the work of the kingdom. And then we regularly use must and need for a bunch of whole other things. Good things, not kingdom things. What is it for you after must, need? So easy for us to lose clarity, isn't it? Start to live a little bit for comfort start to live a little bit for experience and then a little bit for material things and then a little bit for the praise of others. 
and we don't even notice it. A danger for me, and so I assume a danger for you again as well, is that we can look back to and trade on the past glories of my Christian life. And so you lose clarity without even realizing. That is, you can look back to a time, or I can look back to a time, when I was on fire for Jesus, living with clarity for the kingdom, no matter how long it was ago, one year, five years. And I assume that because I was doing it back then, I must still be doing it now. I'm fine now. The particular danger for me is to look back to eight years ago, I quit my job to do an apprenticeship at church and move into full-time paid ministry. I made a decision for the kingdom back then where I was thinking clearly about the kingdom, and so I assume now that everything I do now is, of course, perfectly in line with having the kingdom as a priority. I did that thing back then, and so of course my whole life is now. And yet this week, I went for a shower over a Bible in the morning. See that? So easy to lose clarity, isn't it? How do we get there? How do we lose that clarity? I reckon we lose clarity for one reason, broken down into three parts. The reason is we are lacking in our understanding of the good news of the kingdom. We're lacking in our understanding of the good news of the kingdom. Part one is we're not clear on how good the kingdom is. There's a danger that we think life here is pretty good, I was down at Maroubra Beach yesterday morning, sun coming up, and I'm going, I'm not longing for something better than this. I think I'm here. How much better could the, the kingdom really be? Unimaginably better, Jesus says. The best day you've had on earth is rubbish compared to life in God's kingdom. Just try and comprehend it. Life completely free of sin, of suffering, of evil, of anything less than perfect, while you bask in the radiance of God's glory, with the redeemed people of every nation, tribe, and language forever. We will get more clear on proclaiming and living for the kingdom when we grow in our understanding of how good the kingdom is. Part two, we'll also grow in clarity as we grow in our understanding of how terrible the alternative is. To not be part of the kingdom doesn't mean that you're somewhere that's just, it's not as good, but it's okay. No, it's to experience eternal, conscious punishment. When you get that reality, grow in proclaiming the kingdom. You'll get clear on the priority of the kingdom when you grow, on the alter, or grow in understanding the alternative to the kingdom. Part three, we'll grow in clear kingdom priority as we continue to grow in our love for Jesus and what he's done. That Jesus would experience the full force of God's wrath because of me and for me. If you find that you're not crystal clear on prioritizing the kingdom, come back, grow in, dwell on how good the kingdom is how bad the alternative is and an appreciation of everything Jesus has done. And you will grow to be more clear, more confident to proclaim and live for the kingdom. Misunderstand the purpose of something, it's got consequences, doesn't it? I misunderstood the nature of Kurt's present and so I thought Rod hated me. If you misunderstand what Jesus came to do, you will miss out on what he came to bring. 
And for those who follow Jesus, we've seen he has an incredible clarity in his life, one that we are often missing. But we can grow in that clarity as we grow in seeing how good the kingdom is, how bad the alternative is, and what it took for Jesus to bring us from one to the other. For I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns, and we'll see it's to the ends of the earth as well. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please use your word tonight to grow us. Grow us in clarity about who Jesus is and what he came to do. God, we are blown away by how good your kingdom is. We're so thankful that Jesus came to bring it and to bring us to be part of it. Please help us to have clarity on the purpose of the kingdom in our lives. We pray this for Jesus' glory. Amen.